Hello there, and welcome to the podcast of the best-selling travelogue around the world in 80 cigars. It features fascinating people, amazing places, daft adventures, and great cigars from across the globe. You can buy the book from all good bookshops, from your favourite cigar merchant, or if you'd like your own personally signed copy, you can get one direct from me by emailing nick at nick-hammond.com. Enjoy the pod. How would you like to feature in your very own episode of Around the World in 80 Cigars, the podcast? Host and author Nick Hammond, that's me, is now ready, willing and able to interview you personally for your very own unique and bespoke episode of the pod. It'll be available for just you and your friends. The perfect gift for the adventurous cigar-loving special one in your life, or just a treat to yourself. This exclusive podcast edition will be presented by me and delivered to you electronically edited and complete with podcast music. Visit www.nick-hammond.com or drop me a line at nick at nick-hammond.com to find out more. again everybody and welcome to around the world in 80 cigars with me nick hammond another great guest for you this week's guest well i suppose you could describe him as a as, as an enigma within a conundrum he uh, every time you speak to him he you hear he casually throws away another mention of an extraordinary chapter in his action-packed life now i only met him i guess it wasn't much more than a year or so ago um, but in that time, I've come to regard him as, as a very important friend and confidant. He's a fierce ally, a shrewd judge, and into his 80s, he still squeezes every do- drop rather out of each and every day. He owns a firm which makes military and ceremonial swords for the UK and Commonwealth forces. And before that even, he founded a world-renowned aviation firm. Before lockdown, he thought nothing of jumping on a plane and crossing to the other side of the world for a few hours before coming back again. Um, and he is an absolute uh, non-stop whirlwind of fun, as far as I'm concerned. He's none other than Robert Pooley of Pooley Swords, and I am delighted to have him with me today. Hello, Robert. Oh, hello, Nick. <laughs> good to see you. Or oh, I lo- can't see you. Good to say hello. Good to hear you at least. How lovely to have you with me. How are you, my friend? Thank you. I'm absolutely terrific. And how has the last few mi- months been for you? Um, well, uh, <laughs> very, very difficult it started with. Of course, we followed the uh, government guidelines and uh, put everybody, or not everybody, but put quite a few on furlough. That is out of 21, including me. Um, And we then started a rotor system at the same time. And by the end of that week, I was suicidal. Um, (laughs) Not quite, but nevertheless, it was difficult. Um, So we... uh, discontinued the rotor system that was bringing us down and um, uh, still had uh, about five on furlough. Now, all that sounds 
absolutely fine, except if you're running a business like us with a load of young cadets bursting to get swords, bursting to go out on parade, bursting to, um, uh, to, to show their parents um, what they have achieved. And a sword is a part of that achievement, i.e. a commissioning in not only the British forces, but also that of Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Of All course it is. We have uh, major, um, I can't say interest, major, major associations with in supplying their cadets with their swords. And a sword is really, well, it's a sword is a mark of knighthood and it is a mark of leadership. And that is what these boys and girls are achieving at the end of their courses. Uh, and in the case of uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, it's a four-year course, including a university degree. Big stuff, big stuff for them. Yeah. So tell us, tell our listeners who don't know, um, explain a little more about the business. It's an unusual business in a, in, in a really um, unusual subject. And it's incredibly detailed and incredibly important you get those details. And it's something that you are really passionate about. How on earth did you end up making swords? Because you're not a traditional cutler or military man, are you? No, that's absolutely true. Um, I actually joined the national, joined the uh, Air Force for national service. Um, I signed on for an extra two years as an airman, as an engineer. Um, and at the end of my service, I joined de Havilland's, but at the same time as joining de Havilland's, the air, famous aircraft company that made everything from the Tiger Moth to the uh, comet, uh, I continued during that time with my flying, because I was learning to fly even before I joined the Air Force, finished wow. off my pilot's license and continued with de Havilland's for all of two and a half years. At two and a half years, I'd already started my company. Okay, I'd already uh, was producing knee boards and other navigational equipment for pilots learning to fly. And this is Pooley Aviation. And this is Pooley's flight equipment, as it is known now, and is run by my son, Sebastian. Okay. And, it, and, and your um, manuals are, are literally, no exaggeration, world-known, aren't they? And, and Well, I wouldn't say well-known. They're certainly known within uh, the UK and, to a great extent, Europe. Right. Uh, and these are considered the, uh, the Bibles, if you like, of uh, flying. You can't really go anywhere unless you've got a flight guide in your hand for reference. So that was the basic start of it. And I got to say that the early stages of doing these flight guides, um, my wife, who was uh, the uh, secretary to John Cunningham, chief test pilot of 
the heavens, actually typed out every single word no. on a uh, on a sheet of paper. Unfortunately, the sheet of paper had the de Havilland mark on it, watermark. And oh my God, how I wish I'd kept those sheets of paper because they <laughs> would pay thousands to oh. get them now. But I was so embarrassed that she had done this uh, during um, probably office times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at the time you thought it was best better to keep quiet. Nevertheless, it, it, it was total history, but I'm afraid I dumped it. Um, and of course, from uh, de Havilland's, um, then I cracked off by myself, um, first of all, producing uh, various items of navigation equipment. Did you make uh, those yourself, Robert? That, yes. Well, to a great extent, at the very beginning, before I started a factory, uh, and the publishing was certainly done by myself initially of the flight guides. And then we went into everything. The CRP5 computer is not a computer. It is a slide rule. Okay, oh. a plastic slide rule that in 1973 I thought was uh, end of its time because uh, the Japanese were bringing out the electronics computer, not a plastic slide rule, but the electronics computer. And, and what I, was this for? Well, this is for navigation, but a slide rule, if we go back, Everybody carried a slide rule. Right. Everybody needed that to work their way around whatever they were doing. Whether they were a, an architect or they ran a cinema or they, they ran a shop, they would need their slide rule for working out all sorts of things. Okay. Then, of course, comes the navigation slide rule, practically the same thing with an apple yard scale. And the, this is what we built. But to this day, the CRP-5, every single pilot that's flying up there from most of Europe and certainly uh, in, from the UK, trained in the UK and Europe, would be carrying our slide rules as a backup. Um, not only had they learned to use it for their training, and 25% of the navigation exam is based on the CRP-5. But also the backup for that aircraft, should they have um, electrical failure. A very, very important piece of material, which is basically back to square one. Back, indeed, back to the 1850s when... Um, uh gosh i've forgotten her name um not amelia lovejoy no not lovejoy oh god not amelia Earhart. no 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 long before her oh. uh, an english lady um lovelace oh, yeah. lovelace invented computerism and that is is that still that piece of equipment is still kept in, as an emergency aid, is it, in most oh, times? Absolutely. But it all 
goes back. The word computer, computerism is simply uh, numbers coming together to make sense. It's as easy as that. Anyway. So, you, so after your experience uh, national service, you came out and realised there was a gap in the market where nobody was producing this these things for, and you, and your opinion, aviation was only going to get bigger. Is that right? Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, all our navigation equipment, a little was coming from Germany, but the majority um, was coming from the United States of America. Okay. And within a couple of uh, years, we'd stopped that completely and producing our no, I exaggerate. Probably totally in five years, we'd actually stopped that now. Stopped it completely. And there were no imports coming in. And um, I would say 90% was all Polish stuff. Then we went on to um, publishing, technical books, etc., etc. But that's aviation. Let's forget about that. Let's go back <laughs> to... Um, uh, 1962, yep. I was in Harrods, as one is, um, and I bought a sword. Um, oh I don't know, uh, probably 10, 15, 20 pounds. 20 pounds was a bloody lot of money then. Why did you buy a sword? Because I've always had a fascination with swords. Okay. And my father bought me a fourth, a sword stick would you believe and i remember this so well from india when i was about 14 or 15 for five shillings <laughs> you know money is so extraordinary when you go back in my short life what we could buy for a short for a small amount of money mm. back to aviation uh, in a minivan that I started with, um, I could travel all the way up to Scotland and all the way back, visiting all the airfields and the flying schools um, for £25. It's incredible, isn't it? Uh, hotels, lodgings and everything. It's, it's just amazing. However, okay, I buy a sword from Harrods. Yeah. Um, and I think... This is a good idea. I'll present swords into aviation as prizes and awards instead of giving cups, which most people do. That is a good. Can you remember when that brainwave came to you, Robert? Well, in Harrods, the same time as literally, that. literally when you got this sword. Yeah, yeah, mm. uh, and that's where it started. So. From that moment onwards, I wasn't going back to Harrods to buy a sword. I went straight to Wilkinson Sword, the famous sword makers, and yes. has been for uh, 200 years or nearly 200 years. And so um, uh, having started to buy swords from Harrods and presenting them, first of all, to the Royal Aero Club, the Helicopter Club of Great Britain, the Guild of Air Pilots, now the Honourable Company of Air Pilots, uh, the Popular Flying Association, the Experimental Aircraft Association, Denmark, of course, France. Um, well, the next thing that happened was 
um, having run what has now become a very, very, very successful um, aviation business, uh, the manufacturer and supplier of everything that a pilot would want to learn to fly, mm. whether it's a PPL or a ATPL, an airline pilot transport license, everything, everything we did, including the technical manuals for the private pilot's license and for the commercial pilot's license. However, um, in uh, 2005, I was up at our factory at Cranfield talking to one of my girls, Sheila, that had been with me at that time, 35 years. And um, there we are in the newspaper, the Daily Express, Wilkinson Swords cease trading as sword makers after uh, 200 years. So I went straight into the office, rang them, are you selling? No, we're not, but we're selling everything off. If you're interested, come and see us. Well, that's really how it all happened. Did that rekindle that thought then to get into that very odd market? Well, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, whatever I was doing, I wanted a part of it. Right. Was, I, was I going to start a museum? Was I starting a personal collection? Um, and... And by God, I found myself within a couple of months setting up a business. Did and people that, think you were crazy? Oh, good Lord, yes. <laughs> but I've done more crazier things than that. <laughs> I can only imagine. Insane. Um, I, uh, I, rest I suppose the most insane thing that I've done uh, during the aviation career uh, in, 19, in 1988. In fact, on the 8th of the 8th of 88, um, I bought a ruined uh, castle in Scotland, totally ruined. As one uh, does. And restored that. Great fun. Yeah, I remember you vaguely telling me that story. You literally restored it stone by stone. Yes, absolutely. It was probably two-thirds up. I'm sorry this isn't um, viewable because I'm waving my hands around like anything and, <laughs> and uh, make a good scene. You um, can only imagine. I, I know what sitting over the dinner table is like with you. It's entrancing. In fact, we do a dinner, Robert. We mustn't forget that. <laughs> Lovely. Good idea. Um, uh, so apart from building castles, you decided to launch this, this uh, sword manufacturing company what possessed you to think that that was a good idea when Wilkinson sort of just given up the ghost? Well, um, uh, for uh, the last three years, I found it very difficult to work with uh wilkinson sword the the sword department they right. weren't forthcoming okay um and um when this happened i had many swords that needed to have been dealt with um i 
as awards and presentations, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we do do this still today. Pre presentations uh, for Swords of Honor, et cetera, go out to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, as well as the UK all the time. Uh, so that was uh, a major thing to decide exactly which way to go. And by the time this was in September, when I read about the closure of the sword department, they made marvellous razor blades, of course. Yes. Still. Um, but it was September. Um, by, by the... Um, Sorry, someone's signaling to me. And by uh, December, I had registered Pooley Sword and up and, uh, and from then onwards, we were up and away very, very slowly. Lots and lots and lots to learn. Huge amount to learn. Huge amount to research upon. Huge amount of history. Um, terrific. But in a nutshell, I was able to buy from um, Wilkinson all their uh, production files, all their drawings, um, lots of their various tools, and some of their um, uh, heavy machinery. And was that very expensive? No. No, right, so they didn't want it anymore. Nobody wanted no. it. No. The sadness is um, that uh, I should have gone round to Wilkinson Sword every evening and looked in the skip <laughs> because they must have thrown so much away that would have been useful now. And, of course... I didn't know exactly uh, what I really wanted. No. But, um, so it, it was to a great extent a lot of luck, which I did buy from a lot of luck. Um, and when I look back sort of daily, I wish, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd taken this. I wish I'd done that. But that's life and indeed um in in practice uh we hardly ever look at the production files because it's history and the same with their drawings our drawings are done in a different way etc etc but it's lovely to look back on their remarkable history because you yeah. know they, they started as gun makers in the 1770s um, and then went into the sword making, really, in the uh, 1820s. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful career. And I know that you're, um, you're very much a history buff, because that side of things fascinates you, and you, I know that you can reel off the, the dates and things. Let's talk a bit about, let's get nitty-gritty about swords, because especially these military swords, what is their significance? 
Well, I suppose virtually the history, because um, uh, the broadsword, for instance, the Scottish broadsword, really go back to the 1500s, late 1500s. The same sword has never changed. Um, the same design but, and everything. Uh, yeah, the, the blade, everything. Maybe. The interesting thing is that it wasn't accepted until the accepted into the British Army until the 1830s for the um, uh, the Scottish regiments. It, just, just extraordinary. And I think that is built, still uh, hanging on from Culloden. Anyway, it's a lovely sword, um, not used um, in Australia or Canada, um, as a part of the army, but some of the reserves do use it, but is extensively um, in Canada, where there are 16 Scottish Reserve regiments. Absolutely extraordinary. Really? How, so, how do, on earth does that work in Canada? Uh, well, Canada is the same as the rest of the uh, Commonwealth. Right. And they're using all the same swords. Interestingly enough, we have just uh, redesigned the artistic work, that's the best way of saying it, on all their blades in Canada. Oh, right. So the Navy, the Royal Air Force, Royal, sorry, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the Canadian Army. Every single regiment, every single battalion, every single um, organization has had their swords adjusted. Right. And when you, uh, what, has, what has changed? There's slight, just slight tweaks oh, to the look? Well, or? for Canada, very, very, very easy. One, they have their own royal coat of arms, okay. which has been approved. And of course, they have the maple leaf. What more can you want? And when you look at um, national flags, etc., one of the most distinctive national symbols of any country is, of course, the maple leaf. Mm, true. And it's on a bag of sweets. It's on. It's on practically everything that you you pick up in Canada. Yeah. So we've been able to use that um, on all the swords, still retaining the very, very old British symbols, which, of course, they used for, for well over 100 years. Because when you go back to the Navy, um, we're now talking about the sword that was uh, produced in 1825 is the same sword which is used to this very, very day and is used by many, many uh, navies, not only Commonwealth navies, but many other navies around the world. Right. And so the importance of these designs becomes apparent over the years because many of them have significant battles and things uh, uh, have been added to it haven't they and so that you'll find them etched onto the swords and that becomes something of huge pride and honor absolutely right 
absolutely right. And when you think of the um, uh, the guards regiments, the, the, the five full guard regiments, the royal regiments, um, on their plays, all they have all their separate battle honours, and that is the same uh, with the household cavalry. All the battle honours right up the blades. And the only other people that do this are, of course, the Canadians. Um, and, of course, a sword is an individual sword. A, every single sword we make, and that's why we call ourselves Pooley Sword. Not Pooley Swords. We only do one at a time. Many, many thousands, but one at a time is produced with that person's name on it. So it will have on it William Smith, MBE, etc., etc., as a part of that sword before we crack down on everything else that he might want, i.e., where he was commissioned and the date of commission, perhaps his number, perhaps down the spine of the sword, uh, the chap's um, great-grandfather's initials, yeah, father's initials, and which regiment that he was in, of what he was in, Royal Flying Corps, etc., etc. Do you know, it's such, it's such history. And then, of course, we're always... Um, refurbishing swords and swords that go back 100 years, 200 years, 60 years when they're not looked after. Um, we're refurbishing swords. Uh, and you should see the people, well, they don't at the moment, come and collect their swords. Um, great, great grandfather's sword, awful, awful conditions, throw it in the bin. Um, they bring it to us come and pick it up and many of them are in tears when they say yeah i and that was a side of the of the your story which i thought was very poignant i mean you're talking about long lost links with relatives you're sometimes talking about commemorative swords for people who've lost their lives in battle and their and their family would like to collect their sword or have it engraved and when you give it back to them this glorious gleaming blade with their name and their and the and the regimental herald and things on there and it and it's very very emotional isn't it absolutely it is it's one of the great things but also back to the cadets um they're pretty emotional yeah. uh, you know our swords have to be um perfect really have to be first class and it's lovely to see the cadets and a cadet might say to you hey this dot's in the wrong place and i might say well that's where you put it but don't worry we'll remove it right. um but everything everything must be perfect and these cadets uh generally are over the moon when they get their sword it is something that is their family history. It is for them forever. It is, it is, it is heritage. And uh, it's I an heirloom, isn't it? Producing history, heritage, everything. That sword 
the the next week will go to the Royal Air Force and the Sword of Honor will be presented by Prince um, uh, Prince of Wales. You know, those swords will be um, in their family for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And if, like me, you've lost where you came from, a sword would have been a great reminder that that's where I came from. That's where my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, was fighting. That's where he was. It mm. means, I think, such an such enormous amount to a family and to the person that holds that sword. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, let's, I want to talk to you a little bit more about... Um, about the presentation ceremonies and things, but what, for those of us who are not immersed in this world, where do you start when you want to recreate a, a, a you know two hundred year old sword? Um, at the beginning, a new sword. Yeah, how do you how do you, how do you okay. make a sword? So, uh, as far as um, uh, the Commonwealth is concerned, particularly Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the UK, it is generally I'm out to the colleges in Australia. Uh, I talk to them about the swords, about the history of the swords, about what they will need if they want to buy a sword, and their parents think. This is a wonderful sword, a wonderful idea for a commissioning gift. Um, then they will fill in a form and away we go. We will then advise them what they should have on the sword and the layout of the sword and the font that they want on that sword. And that's that starts the whole thing rolling. And you have uh, great files of all the different swords and emblems and heraldic. Oh, ab absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Yes. Right. Now, now, all of which we have created. Um, and all right, uh, though much of the manufacture of the sword is done with the old traditional way. Um, we actually draw the design up on a computer so that the design is perfect. Um, we then fill in, obviously, the person's uh, name, generally uh, first name, surname, uh, when he was commissioned, as I said before, on the date, and then any other additions that he requires and we send that to him for checking off. And then um, we continue to do the job. And for UK, Cranwell, Sandhurst, Dartmouth, um, and the Royal Marines at Limson, I generally, personally, deliver them and hand them out. When we go to um, Australia, and Canada, they are boxed up and sent out. Um, and then someone is responsible for opening them up and sending them off. Uh, sending them off, handing them out over there. So I would only go to uh, 
Canada um, and Australia, New Zealand, etc., um, for delivering of a speech, delivering of a lecture, but delivering of a talk, as I like to call it, um, to explain the history of swords, the manufacture of swords, and most importantly, the care of swords. Most important, that. Yeah. Um, and um, then I am likely to go out um, once a year for uh, their commissioning parades. And what about the physical process of making the sword? You have a right. forge up, okay. up north, don't you? Yeah, no, first of all, um, obviously it comes from the, out of the foundry. Um, it is then hardened and tempered in sheet form, a sheet of six feet by four feet, right. hardened and tempered. Um, then it is laser cut out, okay? Uh, so that, you must consider, is the modern world, the modern world of the foundry, the yeah. modern world of, of uh, hardening and tempering, and the modern world of... Um, the laser cutting. And you use a foundry up north, do you? And that is in, all in Sheffield. Right. Then from there, still in Sheffield, it goes to uh, our workshop at Aberdale, uh, where it is um, ground to shape. Okay. Okay. Ground to shape with a big wheel sitting between uh, Peter Gribben's legs where he grinds that to shape, taking off all the excess steel and coming out with a perfect blade. I mean, that alone is extraordinary. He does it by eye? By eye. Wow. That is extraordinary. Then it goes back into Sheffield, where we put the fuller in. The fuller is the centre of the blade, um, which is ground out. This lightens the sword, balances the sword, and strengthens the sword, yeah. or should I say the blade. Okay? Like an RSJ. An RSJ isn't yeah. a lump of steel. It is an H figuration. Okay. Okay. That gives it strength. If it was just one block, soon as a bit of heat on it, it would bend. So that's the basic of what goes on up in Sheffield. Very, very, very important. Um, and it's nice to carry on the traditions of Sheffield. It's so historically very important. Yeah. So once that is done, it comes down here to Shoreham, an airport, um, and um, and incidentally, the Canadians uh, were on this airfield at the end of the First World War. I like oh, right. And the New Zealanders in the Second World War. Right. Um, all good stuff. And, of course, in the Second World War, we were surrounded by Can Canadians waiting to cross the... Uh, uh, the channel for Dido. Yeah. Anyway, the blade comes here, um, and here we um, glaze the sword, we um, get the roughness off, 
and then we highly polish that blade, really, really, really highly polished. Then it goes to um, the etching room next door, where it is um, painted the first stage, i.e. we have silk screens made. Yep. When uh, the design is accepted by the purchaser or by the new owner, we actually have that blade um, or that design silk screened. And that is done up in Milton Keynes. Um, okay. And special frames, which you have seen, go backwards and forwards all the time um, by Carter Patterson or whatever we call it these days. Um, and um, new screens are made. So once the screen comes in, it is then lowered, and it's nice to say this, lowered through a hinge onto the blade. Uh, the silk screen is then painted through onto the blade. It then goes from downstairs to upstairs, where it is then adjusted by hand, and all the lines right the way down the blades that you've seen are all painted on by hand. Lots and lots of handwork, lots and lots of hand painting done. From there, it comes down, um, and the other side is screen. Then that is also got upstairs and hand painted, etc., etc. Dried, etc. Drying time takes place. The whole a blade will take two and a half days. Um, generally, uh, twelve at a time, but nevertheless, they're all taking two and a half days to dry out and finish. Yeah, that stage, then it is acid etched, still in the same area that it is um, screened. So there you are. Then you then you have a blade, all painted, all hard all ready for polishing. Then it is polished again and out in reverse comes that beautiful, beautiful blade. And then you have and then a, it an exquisite to... set of um, uh, putting the handles on and, 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 and all that entails. That's not a, a quick job either, is it? No, no. Then it goes to the workshop um, where everything is assembled. Okay, um, where the guard is fixed on, the back plate is fixed on, and the grip. And the grip is fishkin. Um, uh, it, it's um, made from stingray. Yeah, chagrin. Not, not shark. Stingray. Okay, shark is an endangered species. Loud to eat people, but <laughs> not the stingray. But do not fall out with a stingray because they are nasty as well. Yes. Anyway, they make bloody, they make jolly good grips. <laughs> and they look good and they are absolutely perfect. Then they are wired, gold wire bound. Once they are gold wire bound, um, then the whole thing is assembled. Okay. 
That is the sword. Finished, ready for final inspection. But whoa, it's still got to come together with the scabbard. Yes. Okay. So the scabbard, uh, as, as far as the, well, the Army, Navy, Air Force, if it is not um, for the Army a metal scabbard, um, which is uh, then has to be polished and um, plated and all that sort of thing. But if it is a leather scabbard, that all has to be hand-stitched. And that alone is one hell of a job. I don't know how we sell these things. So <laughs> it does uh, make you wonder, Robert. Well, God, it does. Because uh, there's Aston at the end there uh, sitting um, with... Uh, the scabbard for, for the Navy. I know it's Navy at the moment because that's the sword that we're working flat out to produce um, for uh, their pass out in, um, in August. But that is all hand-stitched, beautifully hand-stitched. And both our leather people that are down there have not done leather work before they came here and they are brilliant brilliant absolutely brilliant amazing they, they you know they need a hug when this is all over <laughs> and when you have the finished well, yeah, only three a day only three a day <laughs> <laughs> when you have the finished article these are these swords are not um filed for sharpness are they ground for sharpness no uh, they're certainly not and in, in fact even our little um uh fervent side fighting knives i.e the commando knives are not sharpened but the points are very very sharp you don't want to shove that in someone's heart no quite but presumably apart from that they're identical, and if needs be, one could sharpen it, and it would be the real, real, real McCoy. Is that oh, oh, absolutely right. All right. the swords, all the swords, Army, Navy, Air Force, including the Air Force, are all fighting swords. And you can honestly say that all the swords were designed and built for fighting. And the only one that probably hasn't been is the Royal Air Force. But there again, um, knowing the Royal Air Force, they'd be only too keen to get up <laughs> and fight with a sword. Yes. Um, and, and, and indeed, uh, they've got enough swords to, uh, to have a nice little war now. <laughs> Since we've been on the game, I don't <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, I mean, I know that you've, um, until obviously we haven't, you haven't been able to, you were regularly jetting off to New Zealand or to, is it Bermuda you go to? Uh, no, but what a lovely, nice dream. <laughs> we have sort of one sword into Bermuda and there is one uh, Bermuda man in, um, in uh, Sandhurst at the moment. Uh, we really need to go and see him, Robert. We need to go and do some research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got enough problem with the rat. But we, we around the smaller um, uh, 
countries are not so small. When you look at Botswana, uh, <laughs> only last year we sold a hundred uh, swords to Botswana. Terrific! Oh, so it's one of my um, one of my bucket wishes. That is, is to get out to Botswana and get in one of those Morocco canoes and go off down the tributaries. Oh, of okay, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've had some uh, lovely um, uh, officers from the Botswana army meet me here. Um, Fabulous. And see what we do. It would be lovely to uh, give you their card and say that you're on your way um, <laughs> and would like to talk elephants. To them. Yeah, can you imagine? What fun. Um, yeah. Of all the places you've been and you go to, is there one that, uh, you're particularly fond of as a, as a place to visit and, and a place to go? Oh, well, um, sorry, Australia, New Zealand and the rest of the... Sorry, Australia and Canada and the rest of the world. I, I rather like New Zealand, mm. uh, mainly because it's smaller and uh, it's got everything there. Uh, mountains, lakes, um, rivers, railways, <laughs> everything. Yeah, you Everything. like a train journey, don't you? Lovely country. So, so British. So very, very British. Is it? That's interesting. Yeah. And you, and, and if I recall, you do enjoy a train journey, don't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I've done round the world by train. Yeah, I love trains. Um, yeah, uh, I, it would be interesting. Last, last year, last February of last year, I went to uh, New Zealand, um, straight to Auckland, and then to uh, the South Island, did a two-day talk. Um, sorry, did a, stayed there for two days. One... You probably could talk for two days. ...sleep and have a, a sword out. Two, the second day to do my talk to the Army, Navy and Air Force. And that's why I went there because all the cadets from all three services were there. Did my talk, um, had my birthday that evening at midnight and they oh, gave me really? a, a little tiny birthday cake with a candle, which I couldn't blow out. On the aircraft at 8.30, straight to Auckland, um, met uh, a friend at Auckland, up to um, the museum at Auckland, where I had an apprentice doing a sabbatical, um, met her, um, uh, had a tour of the museum um, to the um, airport of Manhattan to see um, the mosquito and the two people involved in building the mosquitoes, absolutely marvelous. Back on the aircraft, landed at um, uh, in Canada. Uh, oh, went to see the um, uh, Seaforth Highlanders and a kilt maker. Um, there was a six-hour six hour stop, which was super. Uh, back on the aircraft, and I think that I was probably over uh, Toronto for the time my birthday had finished. <laughs> because of the time difference. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds perfect for you, living your life absolutely, absolutely to the Extraordinary. So uh, 
two, um, two days in New Zealand, um, a few hours in, um, in Canada, uh, and I was back. Well, which birthday was that, Robert? Oh, that was my 85th. Good yeah, Lord. Good Lord above. Yeah, lovely. No, it wasn't 84th. Christ, I was so young then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't overdo it. It's important. Listen, I know that you have got a load to do, so I will let you get on. I wanted to thank you for coming on and explaining your extraordinary story to us. And I, we must get a date in the diary to see each other now that I was back in London this week and, um, for the first time in many many months um it's very quiet down there we need to um we need to get things moving yeah it's extraordinary isn't it london was um uh going into london coming out of london uh, was hectic traffic wise uh, but in london during the, around the westminster buckingham palace area um it was empty. Yeah. King's Road was full. Um, and the city was absolutely empty. And I had to go into the city the week before to get some engraving done because the person in the city, uh, Stuart, is the only one that I can trust to do Pacific engraving on silver. Oh, you can't make a mistake when you're um, dealing with, um, uh, well, I suppose silver is semi-precious, um, but you can't make a mistake. You can't. No, quite. Uh, he's the one man that I can trust and um, uh, leave it with him, walk across to the cafe and have something to eat. But unfortunately, the cafe was closed. But never mind. <laughs> well, I went down on the train, and and, and there's nobody on the trains. You got yeah, a carriage. Yeah. You got a carriage to yourself. I went straight into town, and as you say, in the, I mean, even Oxford Street had a handful of people walking up and down it. Um, and I was at the club, the good old club, for the first yeah. time for a while, um, which is great to see that's up and running. But again, very very quiet. So we must well, have yeah. dinner. I, we must uh, we must reconvene yeah, well, for another. Please, please. You know, I I would have loved to have joined uh, the club. Yes, but, I know. You know, um, I'm whizzing. I'm whizzing all the time because exactly. of all the clubs in 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 London uh, and Royal Air Force Club is a fabulous club as well. But I love your your club. I absolutely love it. Um, I think it's well. It started by Wellington, for God's sake, Bob. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not a bad start, is it? I tell you what. I tell you what. I ought to do a sword for um, the club. Oh, they would. They would love it. You know, God, this is how things happen. I ought, and I never thought of that until this moment. I ought to do a reproduction or the same sword that we did for Waterloo, for the Museum at Waterloo, which uh, was a copy of Wellington's General's Officer's Sword. That's a genius idea. Then we could present it and have a dinner in his honour. 
Oh, I think I think I think Christ. Why didn't I think of that? Exactly. Because what? That's a brilliant idea. Listen, all the listeners, keep quiet. Don't tell anyone. Robert, that's a superb idea. Let's do it. God, are people listening to this? They will be eventually. They're not at the moment. <laughs> can, you, can you take out the gods? That are... <laughs> I think that's a great idea. And that's a good excuse for us to, um, to, us to convene. Yes, yeah. Now, I can't possibly start this or think about it until after Sandhurst, which is on the, uh, on the 16th right. of uh, August. Okay. Shall I make a note to get in touch with you after that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. You can get in touch with me anytime. Perfect. I, I will I, do that. You know, I found this very, very exciting. I'm so pleased. I knew that you would be a wonderful person to talk to, as you always are. And it's actually quite fun to stop and think for a moment, isn't it? Yes. And and the the other thing, I think, I I don't think I mentioned, but it it is so important, this comment, that that when I stepped away, if you like, from... uh, the aviation side of things. Mm. And I'm not, not away, for God's sake. I'm still checking books, et cetera, and, <laughs> looking at it, and looking at that and making sure this is done and that stuff. But fortunately, my young son, Sebastian, this is 15 years ago, had just finished university, okay, at uh, Brooks in Oxford. And it is he that within two years had taken on the aviation business and run with it and has made a huge monumental success of it. Um, And um, I couldn't be more proud. It's absolutely super. And not to mention, of course, your daughter. And well, my daughter, in her own right, is a very, very successful interior designer. Um, And... um, last September, uh, received the um, award, International Designer of the Decade Award. No. So that's something for some young man to be proud of, isn't it? They're not bad, these poolies, are they? Well, we do. We work hard. And, of course, my other daughter, who's uh, Samantha, who's a artist, did those uh, wonderful wallpapers of breasts. Oh, yes. You know, and what uh, is not to love about that? <laughs> well, I think that should have really, really taken off. And funny enough, it didn't. Um, and I don't, can't quite understand. But I'd like to get hold of a few and start again. Um, what sheets of wallpaper? Um, not the breasts. And make a make a running of it. It's a delight to talk to you as always. Let's keep in touch and um, and we'll uh, we'll get that return fixture in the diary soon. Yep, absolutely terrific. All best right. to you, Robert. Lovely to hear your voice. And you and I'm off now to the plate straight away uh, with these uh, uh, these scabbards to plate. Wonderful. You go there carefully. And as I talk, I've got a letter here an email from Sam. There we are. Ah, perfect. Well, love to the family and we'll catch up soon. Roger, Roger. Thanks a million. Take care. Bye-bye.
Love to the family. Will do. Bye. Bye. Well, that was the irrepressible Robert Pooley. A quite remarkable man. Um, he is an absolute bundle of energy. He's up in the morning, he's off, he's going somewhere, he's going to an airport, he's in work, he's marshalling the troops. He's taking you across the road to the cafe for some lunch where he's chatting up the girls and calling them by their first names. And uh, and he's just wonderful, great company, lovely man. Um, and I hope you found him as interesting as I do. Um, the response to the pod is amazing. Things go from better to better. Um, masses of uh, people listen to you now. We're, we're crashing through the thousands barriers. Um, and lots of great feedback. So please keep it coming. Please review. Please like. Please subscribe. I know it's a slight pain, but it helps. Um, huge feedback from the last pod, AJ Patel. You're loving his story. Uh, and if there's anyone out there you think I should be in touch with, then give me a shout. Don't forget, you can get me, at Nick uh, W. Uh, no, sorry, at Nick at www.nick-hammond.com. I have something quite interesting coming up for, for those of you who may be searching for a really interesting gift for a uh, for a, a fellow lover of the good life and um, perhaps more details to come in the next pod. I'm just just working on something that might, uh, might just come to fruition in the next couple of weeks. I have some other things that may take a little longer, but you'll be equally interested in, I'm sure. But until then, take care of each other i hope you're all safe out there let's get out there and get this country moving because by god we need it um, and until next time take care bye bye